0: Thank you all for coming. I'm very grateful to be back here in, in Arizona with you all. Uh, you know, I was here in June and felt very warmly received, feeling very warmly received so far, so thank you. So the, my three lectures at this, this mere simulacrity conference have actually a running theme, and the theme is kind of like a sub-conference. I'm just doing my own thing. And it, it's called The Secret Religions of the West. And so uh, now that he's left the room, I want you to all take a minute to laugh at Mr. O'Fallon behind his back because what we're gonna do in the next hour and a half or so is make Mr. O'Fallon stay up all night writing his talk for tomorrow over again. (laughs) (sighs) Unlike last time, I didn't share my notes with him in advance, I thought of it earlier and emailed it to him while while he was speaking, which was very kind of me. So the running theme for my three lectures that I'm going to be giving in this workshop then is, like I said, the secret religions of the West. And what I want to communicate with that is that the West, what we call the West, has been populated not just by the so-called magisteria of faith and science, as we sometimes refer to them, but also by a set of secret religions, which are more appropriately labeled cults. I don't mean that there have been cults or that there are cults or cult startup. I mean cults have been central to the construction of the West all along. They're huge, they're gigantically influential, and nobody notices them because we don't talk about them. And so we have three lectures. I wanna try to stay with the mere simulacrity theme, and I'm gonna talk about that some in a minute. But the first of these talks is actually titled, if, if you've looked, it's called Negating the Real. We have to destroy the real if we want to install something fake. That's, you got it, the whole talk. See you. Um, Thank you for coming. (laughs) We have to negate the real if we want to install something fake. And what I want to make the case is with these secret religions, is these secret religions, I said they're cults, they're false religions. And if you're going to install a false religion, you have to negate the real religions. And I'm being very broad with my use of the word religion, Everybody on earth is going to get mad at me because I'm considering, in a sense, what we would normally think of as the sciences, as a religion very broadly construed, and that's going to make people mad on both sides, but it's actually mostly a linguistic convenience uh, because I want to compare faith, science, and these cults and how they work. So my talks are gonna be a little bit different. I'm not gonna stand up here. I will mention, you know, the World Economic Forum and Zinklage Reset and all of these things. But my point isn't actually to talk about them. I actually want to start, I'm gonna to have to ask you during these three lectures to enter into a kind of, I have to ask you to do a few like mental favors. I need you to imagine some things. And the first thing I need you to imagine is that we live in a world in which there is some ancient world religion, as big as Christianity, as big as Judaism, as big as Islam, as big as Buddhism that you've never heard of. It's just as old. Like Mike was saying earlier, oh, we can go way back. We can go back to Rousseau even, back to so like 1760. No, 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 no. We can go back to whenever the Exodus was written. And there's been a world religion nobody talks about ever since. So there's this world religion that's going to feel very alien to you. It's not going to sound like what you think of as religion. It's not going to use words that you're familiar with. But these have been present with us all along and have shaped the development of the West in all of its dimensions, in faith and in science and in politics and in everything. As a matter of fact, the drama of the West, especially since its beginning, so we're talking like Athens, at this, you know, in this regard, or Athens and Jerusalem, if we want to kind of follow from Ben Shapiro, is actually exposed through understanding these secret religions. All of the major wars of the last century probably have a lot to do with these major religions, especially the two really big ones. So there are these secret other cult religions that have been central to what's going on in the West all along. They're sometimes called esoteric religions or occult religions. They are, in fact, Whether you want to say occult or not, that's a linguistic choice you can make. There are good reasons to talk about it that way and good reasons not to. Namely that it attracts crazies who want to talk to you about like astrology and strange things or very other bizarre things. But there are good reasons to talk about that. But they are certainly, whether you can take off the OC at the beginning, and they're certainly cult religions. They operate on the cult mentality. And there's a very clear way to understand the distinction between a cult and a religion when we understand this. Like I said, it's esoteric religions, and that's a technical term that refers to a broad swath of things that happened in the Middle Ages, starting in maybe the 15th century in Europe, and I would say all the way to the present day, where they have these kind of weird cult religions that have weird beliefs that you don't notice, and they were referred to in kind of in general as the esoteric religions. They refer to Gnosticism, Hermeticism, some things you maybe have heard of that are closer to home, like Kabbalah. Things like Rosicrucianism, the Illuminati, all these scary things that sound very much like conspiracy theories, the Freemasons, and so on. What all of them are, are initiate societies. They're not necessarily, the Freemasons are an example of an initiate group. You go through an initiation, like when you join a fraternity or sorority in college. You have to go through the initiation, then there are secret things, and you can't tell people, blah, blah, blah. We heard earlier from... Mike, about the open conspiracy. These are initiate groups. They can be very decentralized. The way that you get initiated, as we're gonna talk about a lot, is that you understand the way that they misuse language. They use language in specialized ways that signal to people that you're going to understand things in certain ways. And when normal people hear them, if they have not been initiated into that use of the language, they're not part of the cult. That's why the most important part about these secret religions is that they are secret religions. Normal people like you and me and everybody else barely know anything about them, except in a few cases where people have done some reading. But that's partly because they hide themselves on purpose. So I'm saying that to you as a warning because you're gonna, like last time, you're gonna hear a lot of new ideas and terms, myths, ways of thinking that you probably haven't heard before, haven't encountered before, and it's probably gonna stress you out because I was telling my wife about this before I came, and she was like, oh my God, you're making me feel like an idiot. And I was like, oh no. And then I thought, wait a minute, that reaction's normal, and I wanna give you this. Literally three or four months ago when I started reading this, I didn't know what any of it was at all. I, my, I w- my eyes would glaze over when I would try to read. It's like, I don't need to read these kind of like weirdo books like the Corpus Hermeticum and the Emerald Tablet and this kind of strange, esoteric stuff about you know spiritual magic powers. It just felt silly. So don't get stressed out if you get overwhelmed with the terminology. I'm going to try to make it as accessible as possible, but that reaction is normal. Because the goal of this talk, or this series of talks, and in a sense part of this conference, is to make, make it so that these religions, these secret religions, can't keep hiding in the shadows. We have to learn to see them. We have to develop the discernment to pick them out, to pick out when somebody that sounds like they're talking Christianese is actually talking in the esoteric, hermetic Language, when they seem like they're talking the Jewish language, that they're actually talking Hermetic language. When they think, when they're talking about the science, and we can distinguish science from the science, that the reason that we can distinguish between those is that, in fact, they're speaking in the language of these initiate religions or these secret religions. And the goal is to make that visible for everybody. So they can't hide in the shadows, and when we expose them and understand how, them, how they work, they become very, very visible, they become very, very clear, and they become something that we can comprehend and fight and eventually defeat because they don't have truth on their side. In fact, they can't have truth on their side, and we do. So that's, uh, that's something very important that we have. It will take time, but it only took me a few months to get kind of comfortable with the way they use their language, their weird words that philosophers have used, but we haven't as normal people. So, like I said in, in the summer when I was here, I encourage you not just to listen to the talk tonight and take notes and all of that, which of course I encourage you to do, I encourage you when the videos are released to watch them back. I heard from Pastor Kyle that watching them back on double speed helps for some reason. So before we continue, I've already asked you to imagine that there, I'm not even, I shouldn't even ask you to imagine, it's just a fact that there have been secret religions in the West that you don't know about. They are, like I said, very old, ancient in fact, at least 2,500 years old, possibly more. It's unknown how old they are, they lie about that. But because Plato referred to them as being old in 2,400 years ago, about 400 B.C., we know that they're older than that. And so they are very old and they've coexisted alongside this. But, so I want you to imagine that this is the case and you're going to discover extra religions you didn't know exist. So Mike was, I'm not going to call him out, but he was technically wrong when he said we need a new world religion. No, it's a very old world religion in a new set of clothes. It's all it is. But I have to ask you to imagine something else if you want to be able to comprehend these lectures and that's that you're crazy. I need you to pretend that you're crazy. In fact, that you're mega, megalomaniacal, which is a word I could never say the first time. That you are a person who believes that you've had, not through prayer or you know whatever, or suggestion or being called, but literally like we heard in Andy Woodard's video that he played earlier of the World Economic Forum woman, was it Catherine something, literally that you believe you've had an encounter with God yourself and been told it's your job to change the world. I need you to pretend that you're crazy. It'll make it a lot easier to understand. But these cult religions, like I said, these secret religions explain the need for there being a conference on mere simulacrity, which refers, as, as Mike pointed out to you guys earlier, refers to John Baudrillard's philosophy of hyper-reality or this, this idea of a simulated fake reality. It's because the way these secret religions operate, the way these secret religions hide themselves, the way that they are able to co-opt worldly authority, as we might phrase it, is by creating simulacra of things that actually deserve authority, pretending to be something they're not, and then occupying that space. They pretend to be philosophies, they pretend to be religions, they pretend to be science, and therefore trick people into supporting them and that happens by generating a fake image of the thing that they're going to occupy, and then moving people out of the real thing into the fake thing. The way that you know if you're in the club is if you understand their language. If you don't understand the language, you're not in the club. So then you're trapped in hyper-reality not knowing what's really happening around you, but if you know the language, you know what's happening, and you're actually using it to manipulate people and to move your agenda forward. So in this talk, I actually, it's called negating the real. We need to obliterate reality if we're going to substitute in a fake. There's no other way to get people to accept a fake reality. You have the power of your own senses. What do we always say when we want to point out a totalitarian thing? Don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe your lying ears. Don't believe your own senses. Your senses actually allow you to contact truth. If you're Christian, you believe the law is written on your heart, it allows you to contact truth. They have to obliterate that. They have to negate your access to the real in order to substitute the hyperreal in its place. They can't give you the artificial unless they get rid of the actual for you. And that's very important to understand. But these secret religions, these true, the ancient ones, Hermeticism, Gnosticism, and so on, operate almost wholly on what's called negative theology. And there's nothing particularly wrong with negative theology as a tool within a theological approach. It's got a fancy name, in fact. Apophatic, I think is how you say it, or apophatic theology, it tears down, takes apart, etc. It's compared against positive theology, which expresses the attributes of God, for example, and that's cataphatic philosophy or theology. If I have these things right, I don't do the fancy words as much as I should, I guess. But the idea of a negative theology is that you cannot possibly describe God as the highest being in terms of what he is. You can only explain him in terms of what he is not. So it's a negative philosophy. Oh, he's good. No, he's better than that. He's great. No, he's better than that, too. He's the source of, nope, better than that, too. Anything you stick to him, not good enough, not big enough. So it's an inability to describe God except by saying what God is not. And these religions rely entirely on negative theology. They use very little or no positive theology. This, they think, is the only way to describe a totally indescribable God, which is the thing that they claim to believe. So when you have a religion like Christianity that makes positive statements about the attributes of God, they say that that must necessarily be a limited or false religion, and thus they have a higher or better one that doesn't have those limits put on it, and that's how they're going to move into that space and occupy it and create a fake Christianity that's better than the real Christianity and get people to fall into their cult trap. And these things literally have been called heresies throughout history or Christian cults or Christian-ish, I guess, cults we could say because they're not technically Christian. I don't wanna really talk a lot about theology. I just want to be able to identify these kinds of ideas because negative theology morphed throughout these traditions as the, the, the Middle Ages came into the modern era and science and the enlightenment progressed, they transformed into something that literally got named negative thinking. And another name for negative thinking is critique. And you hear the critique of pure reason, you hear critical theory, you hear Karl Marx say the ruthless criticism of all that exists. That's what they're talking about, and negative thinking. And the negative thinking has evolved into what we would call woke denunciation if we were being very clear about what woke actually means. If we actually define what woke means, it's a process of knowing how to denounce something in a specific way that allegedly announces the possibility for something different without ever having to say what it is. And you'll notice that's what woke stuff is. That's racist. What are we supposed to do about it? Give me power. I don't know. They never have to make a positive argument, they only make a negative argument about how everything you can possibly conceive of is bad in some way. It's a a denunciation. And the, the Brazilian educator, the Marxist, Paulo Freire, said that what you do when you have a critical consciousness, when you learn to do negative thinking, is that you denounce in a way that automatically announces the possibility of something different, which you never actually have to articulate. And that's what I want you guys to understand is how it operates. It's very important that they never actually make a positive argument for their own position. They only make negative arguments against yours and make it so that everybody's confused and thinks, well, whatever we're doing now is bad, we have to do something and they have something that's contained in give them power. And that's basically the way their magic or their sorcery, those are words Mike used earlier, I'm gonna use them a lot, actually work. To understand this idea of simulacrity, we have to understand the name of the conference, we have to understand mere simulacrity refers to the concept of simulacrum. Mike made it easy by actually going through Baudrillard for me earlier. I'm sure my friend that runs my vocal distance will go over Baudrillard quite a bit tomorrow. Um, But the title of the conference, mere simulacrity is obviously riffing off of CS Lewis's mere Christianity. But instead of having a mere Christianity, now we have a mere imposter, a mere fake, a mere, uh, counterfeit, and so we're we're playing off of that. But I want to be very positive about Baudrillard, even though he was technically an anti-capitalist, postmodern philosopher. I want to say that what he was giving were warnings. I'm not going resur- like to rescue the guy's reputation as a as a as a character in history. He hated capitalism, et cetera. I just wanna say that he was issuing warnings about this hyper real situation. And I don't think his warnings actually were as far as they should have gone because he was attacking the capitalist image making, the advertising industry, the media industry, and its ability to create images and keep people operating within the capitalist frame. And I don't think that his warnings were applied where they needed to be, but he was making warnings which is that we can become detached from the real and end up in. We even heard from Mike earlier, reading straight from from simulacrum and sim, simulation, that you can end up in the sorcerer's zone or the the, the 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 range of sorcery that was a third of the four stages that Mike gave through, went through when he went through Baudrillard's concept of the, the development of a simulacrum. The wizard's circle is another way to phrase it. And you can become stuck there. He said it was due to advertising and the capitalist nature of the the world and keeping people consumers and all of these things, and especially the media apparatus. But his warning is poignant. It just happens to point at his team. And so the way that this is actually gonna work, the short, short version of this lecture, is that these occult, esoteric, secret religions of the West have have to displace their competitors in order to occupy the space that they fill. Faith fills a space in people's life. Science fills a space in people's life. If you want to get your occult nonsense in that place, you have to make people step into your space that looks like it. That's the way that it works. So you create a simulacrum of the space. I think my microphone's popping in my pocket and I don't know what to do about that. We'll figure it out if it keeps doing it. You have to create a counterfeit and then subvert the real thing so that people want to move away from it while making your thing look better in some way, more attractive. It's like a con game. Do you guys know what, con, what a con man is? Do you know what the con and con man is? Oh, they did a con, right? What is a con? It's a confidence game that's actually short for confidence man. Somebody that builds up confidence, your confidence, so they can take advantage of it illegitimately to screw you over. And so what we're dealing with here, in some sense, if we want to be generous and call these secret religions religions or philosophies, is that they're confidence religions or confidence philosophies. They operate on what we might call, as my one friend Mike Nana calls them, confidence epistemology. They come out and they, make you, they build up confidence in the same way a con man builds up confidence in his product, gets you sucked in, and you buy into the confidence that's being projected by the person doing it. This is the cult or guru process and it's a parasitic operation almost always. It latches onto something real, replaces true authority with false authority. All religious metaphors immediately apply correctly. I'll let you go to them. It constructs a false authority that it brings people, it lures people into. And how that works as a parasite is the theme of the second talk and its actual operations is the theme of my third talk I'll give a couple days. So as far as simulacra go, when we talk about John Butteryard and the relevance of the concept of a simulacrum, like Mike said earlier, it's a copy of a thing. In fact, it's a copy that you are increasingly losing relevance or, uh, to, to the original. You, you you can't figure out necessarily where it came from. So, a knockoff Rolex is a simulacra or simulacrum of a real Rolex. Now, if we're in China, you might have a knockoff of the knockoff or a knockoff of the knockoff of the knockoff. And sooner or later, Rolex is spelled with like an L because their English isn't so good. And you see these things. I mean, I saw Harley-David-So uh, motorcycles advertised in the mall in, in Beijing. And sooner or later, you start to lose any resemblance to the original. And then that's what Bo- John Baudrillard was warning about is a full-blown simulacra. Uh, There are lots of examples, but it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy until the original is lost. You have a document, you run it through the the copy machine, it gets a little fuzzy. You run it through the the copy, through the copy machine, it gets a little fuzzier again and again and again and again until you can't read it, is a sense. I mentioned, you know, my friend, Wokal Distance, who's here and is going to speak tomorrow, and his strawberries, Mike tempted you with Wokel's strawberries, that's kind of the name of this metaphor, and I encourage you to listen to him when he speaks about that tomorrow, I won't steal his... it's so actually perfect, you've experienced a simulacrum, I mentioned the Rolexes and Chinese knockoffs, you understand that, you've experienced it with pancake syrup, you know, you want maple syrup on your pancakes, but then there's that log cabin stuff or whatever other brand that's like definitely not maple, but kind of looks like it and sort of smells like it because it actually has fenugreek in it. And then there's artificially flavored that doesn't even have fenugreek in it as it turns out. And then if you're like me and you're from the Southeast, you just got straight brown Cairo syrup at some point on your, it's just straight corn syrup out of the bottle. These are simulacra of the thing in a sense that is the original. You've moved from maple syrup to pancake syrup to just syrup. Um, and you're losing what it is. A great example that actually ties into what we're talking about, kind of hits at the point, is WWE wrestling. This is a simulacrum of wrestling. If you didn't know, I hate to ruin this for you all, if you didn't know that, that wrestling is fake, it's performed. It's a performance of wrestling. Yeah, these are big, strong dudes. Yeah, they're really picking each other up and really throwing each other down. Yeah, they're really slamming and jumping on each other. People actually do get hurt, etc. But it's a performance that is mostly or often entirely scripted, or at least the outcomes of the matches are scripted. It's a performance of wrestling. And I bring up the idea of performance or performativity because that's what we have. We have people performing as, say, public health officials or CDC directors. We have communists performing as pastors and priests, that's called liberation theology. We have communists performing as college professors. We had a, college, a communist performing as a college professor by the name of Judith Butler who said, wow, I'm a lesbian, I don't really feel like I fit into the female mold, I must be performing my gender in the same way that the WWF people, or WWE, I just told my age, are doing performance of wrestling. And this is kind of the point, is that they expand the concept of what wrestling means, or in this case, gender, expands and expands and expands to where it becomes totally constructed, totally performative in their minds, and then they negate the real thing. Sex isn't real. Gender identity is more real. And that's a big shift. A big shift. We're going to negate sex. Judith Butler herself said, well, if gender is constructed, maybe sex is constructed. And she started it. Queer theory for 30 years since or 40 years since has done nothing but try to break it down. Oh, it's your sex assigned at birth. It's just something some medical authority called a doctor said. It's not real. And then they get really perverse and weird with you. They're like, oh, if you say that sex is real, you're obsessed with genitals now. So so you see what I'm saying? They create the fake thing, which is gender identity. They denigrate the real thing, which is biological sex. And when you try to defend it, they denigrate you by saying you're a pervert for talking about genitals so that you will wanna get away from that and occupy the constructed space. That's the negation of the real, and that's how these secret religions of the West work. Here's another more religious example. I've mentioned Gnosticism and Hermeticism. I'm gonna withhold most of the Hermetic creation myth for the moment. We'll talk about that in another one of the talks, because if I do all the creation myths, it's too long. But I want to tell you just a taste of what the Gnostic creation myth is. Gnostic is complicated. There are three, at least, very distinct meanings of the word. I'm not going to point in it too much, but there's actually a Gnostic belief that latched onto Christianity, and it interprets the story in Genesis that there's actually an indescribable greater God behind the God that's the character in Genesis that creates the world. The creator of the world in the Gnostic myth is actually the demiurge, which is from the Greek demiurgos, which means artisan, builder. And it turns out in the Gnostic creation myth, The thing that you recognize as God in Genesis and throughout the Bible is a demon. An evil demon, as a matter of fact, that created the world specifically as a prison to trap humanity, keep humanity from realizing he is what he really is, which is as God, or just God, and thus to do that by keeping him ignorant of the nature of the true higher God behind the fake God that's imprisoning everybody. And so when this creation myth, when the serpent whispers to Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 the serpents telling the truth, and Lucifer becomes the first savior, and Christ becomes a character in this story, another savior that just comes along to reiterate the same story, and so Christ and their simulation becomes equivalent to Lucifer, except Lucifer was the first and the highest. That is a simulacrum of Christianity. And if they can make you believe it by convincing you that the world really does feel kind of like a prison, it hurts, you don't get your way, bad things happen, et cetera, et cetera, they might lure you out of real belief and into a Gnostic cult. And there have been lots of them. They have names, the Sethians, the Manichians, um, the Valentinians, there have been, the first and second centuries were full of Gnostic cults. So it works, it lures people in being becomes a prison constructed by an evil god that you think is god and you therefore don't know the full real truth but they do that's the psychology they play the hermetic idea has the the hermetic one we're not going to go into the whole thing with the creation myth is that um christ was really just a hermetic he was just another wizard in their hermetic alchemy Pantheon. He's just another one of their high-level attained people. He was a mystic in theirs. He's not actually the son of God. He's just a high-level Buddha, as it were. And so actually, if you believe in Christ, you actually are already one of them. You just don't know the whole truth, and that's the way that they get you. And now you're off believing silly things, or dangerous things, or heretical things, but most importantly, counterfeit things. In general, the idea is that you extrapolate out from what people are talking about, whether it's reality, whether it's scripture, whatever it is, extrapolate out and out and out until the original, the real, the authentic, is lost. And all that's left is the fiction that they created and made to seem more attractive for bad reasons. Like gender identity being a fiction that replaces sex, which is a reality. That's why this conference is about mere simulacrity and that's why these talks about the secret religions are about mere simulacrity. There are simulacra of two key institutions and that's everything that follows from them. Those are faith and reason. Faith as an institution, reason as an institution. We're very abstract at this point. Very, very abstract. Everything that follows from them. There are false churches as a result of faith. False seminaries as a result of faith. There are false CDCs. FDA's, FBI's, SBcs, PCAs, false vaticans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when I say that faith and reason are these two great big institutions, I want you to bear in mind just this is an oversimplification. These are linguistic placeholders so that I can kind of give you three conceptual worlds and compare and contrast it against them. Don't don't take it all too literally. But what we have is this creation of the, of, of the science, this fake science, and we have this creation of mere simulacrity in the place of Christianity, or whatever other faith. And the reason is because faith and science describe two broad sets of relationships to truth. Faith and reason are not identical things, but they can hold hands. And my argument through these three lectures is that when they hold hands, in a sense, or shake hands, good things happen. When they stop, when they get turned against one another, when they lose track of what they're supposed to be, they lose the way. This third entity, Gnosis, Gnosticism, in one form or another, creeps in. The secret religions of the West do not operate on reason, they are not philosophy, and they are not science. They do not operate on faith. They operate on something different. They operate on something called gnosis, which is a Greek word that means absolute knowledge. It's special knowledge, revealed knowledge, the kind of knowledge that you get by having an alleged encounter with God. Just to disambiguate, though, there are three big meanings of the word Gnostic. I've got to clarify those a little bit. There's the big, big G, I guess, Gnostic, if you want, and that's the kind of background, secret, esoteric faith Gnosticism, that's a very old line of thought that basically being as a prison, it was constructed by an evil demon, blah, blah, blah. There's a capital G, regular capital G Gnostic, which refers to when the Christian story or sometimes the Jewish story gets hammered into that. The thing I just did with Genesis is the regular capital G Gnostic. And very specifically, actually, capital G Gnosticism refers to the Christian cults primarily in the first and second centuries. That's a a little bit of an unfortunate linguistic choice that was made by some of our forefathers because it makes us difficult. Then there's small g, lowercase g, like just a concept, not a proper noun, Gnostic. And what that means is, like I said, revealed and secret absolute knowledge. Awareness of an absolute truth that's been revealed to you, kind of like our friend from the World Economic Forum we heard from earlier. So I have a copy of a book that is one of the religious texts of Hermeticism, it's called the Corpus Hermeticum, the body of the Hermetic faith. It originally had 17 books, two or three of those have been lost to history, we don't know what they say. I'm sure it's a coincidence there are 17 books and 17 sustainable development goals and 17 contradictions of capitalism identified by Karl Marx, I'm sure that's a coincidence, 17 generative themes identified by Paulo Freire to conscientize somebody, I'm sure it's a coincidence. In the preface or the foreword, the translators forward to this, they explain the word gnosis because they have to because a normal Western audience doesn't know what it means. They say, the heart of the Hermetic teaching contained in this book is the realization that the individual is fundamentally no different than the Supreme. Let that one sink in for a second. That's the first sentence in the book. This realization is gnosis. So when I say it's secret revealed wisdom, it's actually that you know that you're God. In the Hermetic faiths, which we'll get into more later, in the Hermetic faith, you know Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? That's the Trinity. The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, right? No. For them, it's Father, mind, Well, it's God, I should say. God, mind, man. Man is the third person of the Trinity. Man's spiritual quest is to remember that he's God, That's what this is referring to, and that's this realization is gnosis. That's what small g gnosis means. A single immediate event characterized as a second birth. Mike mentioned death and rebirth. The communists mentioned death and rebirth. Paulo Ferreri says his communist education system is a death and rebirth. That's called a cult initiation when you step away from it. This teaching outlines the spiritual path that prepares the way for this gnosis, which is not achieved by any effort of the ordinary mind. The words of the teacher work independently of the disciples, thinking the point of these treatises is not to argue the truth of their propositions. Their meaning is the change they affect in the hearts of their readers or listeners in awakening them to truth. Remember that thing... We were talking about earlier with alchemy and George Soros that Mike talked about, that the point isn't the truth of their supposition or presuppositions or propositions. It's the meaning. Their meaning, I'm sorry, is the change they affect in the person that receives them. Remember when Mike brought up the concept of reflexivity? And he said that a reflexive moment is one, it's a statement that becomes true when people believe it or remains false when people don't believe it. This is a revolutionary moment was the example. If we all believe that, we charge out into the street and J6 ourselves, maybe it wasn't such a good revolutionary moment, but you know what I mean. If none of us believe it, we all sit in our chairs and you guys think I'm crazy for saying it. That's reflexivity. That's what this gnosis is in their own words, in the first paragraph of their book. And so of course, just to repeat George Soros' definition of alchemy, scientific method seeks to understand things as they are. In other words, the truth of the propositions, while alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. Their meaning is the change they affect in the hearts of their readers or listeners. To put it another way, in George Soros' words, the primary objective of science is truth, that of alchemy, operational success. It's the same thing. When George Soros, in 1992, wrote The Alchemy of Finance, he's writing the exact same thing that was written in the Corpus Hermeticum at least 2,500 years ago. This is what I mean by secret religions of the West, this is what we must understand. We cannot stop, what do you call it, woke, communism, neo-communism, sustainable and inclusive future, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter, the Great Reset, we cannot stop it until we understand that it is identical to these esoteric religions from antiquity that have haunted the West all along. The way that you stop them, not practically and operationally, is that faith and reason, when they're operating correctly, box that box gnosis out. They don't let it in. They keep it out. Faith keeps reason humble so it doesn't get arrogant and think it can transform man into God-man. In other words, faith keeps reason based. It also lies underneath reason. Science can be all the science it wants, but without faith that the world is comprehensible and orderly, it doesn't go anywhere. Faith grounds and humbles reason. Reason, on the other hand, keeps faith sane. A long time ago, Sam Harris said that the only difference, he was criticizing religion a bit unfairly. He said that, you know, if George Bush had come on, it was politically relevant at the time, had come on the TV and said he, you know, had a conversation, he prayed and he had a conversation with God and it moved his heart and he did X, Y, Z, that everybody would say, okay. And they would say, that's a good thing. But if he said that he talked to God through his hairdryer, everybody would realize he was nuts. And the only difference is the hairdryer is what Sam Harris said. This is what I mean by reason keeps faith Sane. If you're just going to believe in that which is unseen, blind faith, it's stupid faith. And if you have stupid faith, sooner or later some cult guy is going to be telling you he talked to God through a hairdryer and is telling you that you got to go out and run into the street and definitely go into the Capitol or whatever stupid idea it is. These two working together keep Gnostics out. These two, either when they lose track of one another or when they go off the rails in their own ways, invite Gnosticism in. And that's the hyper-reality. There is a necessary trick to creating a, key culture, a simulacrum of a key cultural institution like science or faith. But before we mention that, let me point out that we keep talking about this idea of truth, and that we have truth on our side, etc. The fact is that truth or reality is... In the words of, a, of one of these woke people that wrote in 1989, her name was Kelly Oliver. She wrote a paper complaining, saying that we, we've moved beyond true theories and false theories, she said, and going into just strategic theories. She could have been riffing from George Soros or from the Corpus Hermeticum. But what she complained is that reality is recalcitrant. It doesn't just go along with you. It doesn't care in some sense what you think or what you want. I want reality to donate millions of dollars into my bank account. Whoops, it didn't do it. You know, I got sunburned. I want reality to not make my skin hurt. Gonna have to wait a week. You know, whatever it happens to be. Reality is recalcitrant. I want to build an airplane that can fly faster, that can Mach 8 and sell tickets and make a billion dollars. Well, turns out those are hard to build. Reality is recalcitrant. Truth, therefore, is a great leveling tool It's not just a tool of being able to become enlightened and do things in the world. It is a leveling tool. And faith is a humbling tool. What do I mean by these? Faith is a humbling tool because it reminds you that no matter how much you think you know, there's something out there that's way bigger than you understand, regardless of how you name that or what you do with it. So sit your butt down. You're not the be-all that ends-all, as my grandma probably would have said it. Truth, on the other hand... Is accessible when it's true to anybody. Doesn't matter if it's Anthony Fauci or the greatest actual scientist in the world or a country bumpkin from Oklahoma. If they figure out something about medicine, say that like certain things, you know, maybe cure certain diseases that you're allowed to say on TV, doesn't matter who figured it out. It's true. And that's Recalcitrants of nature all over again because they have their schemes, they have their theories, they have their plans, they have whatever, and if it's proved to be false, it's false. So truth is a great leveling tool. It is a tool that puts power in the hands of anybody willing to do the work, and faith is a great humbling tool where you don't get to get up on your pedestal. So you can't just bully your way in anymore and take by force and force people to believe in something fake. Truth and faith actually prevent that. And so the way that they get past that, you can't just, I can't just come up here and say, hey guys, got some magic water. You drink this, all your diseases will go away. Or if it's like late night TV, you know what it'll make grow. Turns out that's a pretty common one, right? Snake oil. That's another knockoff kind of thing. You're not going to believe me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come in and say, yeah, 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 okay. Truth is, you know what you're talking about. You're smart. You know how this works. But did you know there's more? And not only is there more, they don't want you to know it. There are people out there trying to control your life. They don't want you to know the whole truth. They don't want you to know that you can actually run your car on water. That was a thing for a while, wasn't it? They don't want you to know that this potion I brewed up in my bathtub actually cures cancer, as long as you eat a bunch of blueberries when you do it. They don't want you to know that because they're gonna profit off of it. The allopathic medicine industry is making billions. They don't want you to know that you just have to drink more water along with my secret potion. By the way, it's $39.99. We'll get you on a subscription plan. You know some stuff. Yeah, you're smart. You're partly in on it. You know some of the truth, but there's more and they don't want you to know it. That's the mechanism that often brings you into their hyper-reality. Your thing, whether it's Christianity, whether it's science, is just some small part of our bigger thing that we understand better than you, and when you're ready to go deeper, we're ready to take you. That's the lure. That's that thing that you put on your fishing line to cook the big one, and you're the big one here. They are benefiting from your ignorance and your curiosity. But what's going to step in, it may not just be a con man ripping you off. It might be a tyrant or a megalomaniac who's going to try to control you. This has a name given in Latin by some philosophers, somebody with libido dominandi, the lust to dominate, the lust to control, the drive to dominate others. So snake oil, we just mentioned that, that's a good example. Allopathic medicine, the medical establishment, the doctor, he doesn't know, he knows a lot, but he doesn't know everything. He thinks a pill and a knife is gonna fix everything. But did you know that if you come to my place and I stick a bunch of needles in you and I pay you a lot of money, even though I didn't actually do anything but learn that on the internet, that you can cure all of your diseases and more through this made up acupuncture I made up? Allopathic medicine has its place, but it's limited. I have alternative medicine. And I could, maybe some of that's legit, maybe it's not, but I can sell you on some snake oil pretty quick. What about critical race theory? Oh, you think you understand racism, right? Yeah, you said a racist thing, you did a racist thing, you did this, you did that. Racism's individual, or they passed a law to exclude certain races from doing things that's institutional. You can't get a job here if you look this way. Yeah, that's individual racism, that's institutional racism, but actually racism's systemic and everybody's complicit in it. Just by upholding the capitalist system, as a matter of fact, you're systemically oppressing other people. You're complicit in a system of racism. You don't even understand it. People can be racist, yeah, that's a limited understanding of racism. We have a higher level understanding of racism. Come to our DEI training, we'll tell you all about it. Your company needs a consultant, we're three, excuse me, $3 million a month. The Gnostic creation myth, which I mentioned earlier, that's a perfect example. A perfect example. Oh, yeah, that Christian story you know, that story in Genesis, way more to it than that. Did you know that there's actually a higher God that they won't even tell you about? Your church doesn't want you to know that. You would leave your church. They have a financial vested interest in keeping you stuck and ignorant, blah, blah, blah. You see how seductive it is? You feel the whisper of the serpent when you actually start to listen. What if that's right? Your curiosity and your ignorance get the best of you. Your religion is actually our religion, but we know it better than you. That's literally the message of Hermeticism, which is one of these Gnostic secret religions. I mean, literally. They believe that there is one true religion. You can think of it like a gigantic, say, diamond. One true faith in everything. Christianity, Islam, all the religions. In fact, all the philosophies of the world, science, all the sciences, are like the faces carved onto the surface of that diamond. They call it the Prisca Theologia the ancient theology, the one theology. which you have to then take all the existing faiths, philosophies, sciences, and mash them together, and you get a new religion called sustainability and inclusion. No kidding. That's hermeticism. The science. The science. The science. That's a perfect example, right? We just went through that. We don't have to talk about what we just went through for three years with COVID, to have a very visceral feeling that somehow science has been occupied by a counterfeit at this point. I am the science. I am authority itself. Wear masks, don't wear masks. Get vaccines, get three vaccines. Whatever they need to say in the moment to keep it going. I got started in taking on all this woke stuff, and if you want to listen to it at full length, I just released a podcast um, this week, What Radicalized You, James Lindsay, in which I read a paper about the study of glaciers from a feminist perspective in full. That paper in 2016 is what made me start studying woke. They colonize these sciences. They use fancy words to justify it, like we need transdisciplinarity. But what they're doing is a technique that should be called dialectical inversion. They're saying, yeah, guess what? Did you know, actually, yeah, you're doing science. You think you're objective, but you're not objective. Everything's political. You just don't even know you have biases. Now look at the history of glaciology, for example, the study of glaciers. Look how many men have dominated. Look how women have been excluded. Look at all the harms it did to women. Causes all these problems. The thing you're doing is just politics by another means. Well, we're doing politics, and your thing caused all these problems, and our thing knows all of the problems that yours is causing, so obviously it's better. Notice they never told you what their thing is or why it's good. They just told you why their thing is the same kind of thing as yours and yours is bad, and then theirs becomes good by default. I call that a dialectical inversion. And that's literally how they're claiming the hard sciences right now. That's literally how they're claiming engineering. Literally how they're claiming physics. It's not inclusive enough, it's not diverse enough, it's not whatever the good-sounding word is. It's all politics by another means. Education is all politics. So, We're gonna do social emotional learning. If you read the social emotional learning books, what do they tell you about it? They say social emotional learning is happening in education all the time. It's always there. You're always doing character education. You're always teaching people how to be social and in social environments and how to behave and all this. It's just disorganized. We have an organized method for doing it. So ours is better. Look at all those haphazard ways you're doing it. Look at all the problems that have come about in society. Look how disorganized and bad the school behavior is. If we teach kids social-emotional learning with an organized program, all that can go away. We know the problems of your thing. As for ours, it's data-driven, which means we're gonna collect data to find out how it works as we go. And it's being implemented in literally every school district in America, while they confess in almost every document they write that they don't have the data to justify it. That's a dialectical inversion. That thing you're doing and the thing we're doing, are really the same, except yours causes a bunch of problems. And theirs is in the future, so they can't point, they've not done theirs, so you can't point to the problems that it causes. When you say it will cause problems, they say you're a conspiracy theorist. That's not what it really is. You misunderstand the words. We're smarter than you. This has some formal language laid out in the philosophy of Hegel. Hegel's been invoked. We now can just mention Hegel. We don't have to say who Hegel was. You know, around 1800, he's writing these books, 1800 to 1830 or so is when he's the most prolific, he creates his dialectical method. What you think of as medicine, education, faith, racism, creation, exegesis, science, what you think of as those things, Hegel would label as abstract. You have an abstract understanding of them and he has a method. That's a dialectical method, his system that will take it from being abstract, which means just something in thought to something concrete which is something real. And Hegel's dialectic isn't the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or the, what was it, action, reaction, um, solution, or whatever it was earlier. Problem, reaction, solution, thank you, Mike. It, It was abstract, negative, concrete. You start with an abstract idea, which for Hegel means an incomplete idea of the thing, You think about it until you encounter its negative within itself, you focus on the negative until you understand how the thing and its negative are part of the same thing. Science actually a form of politics, it's the same as politics. And then you make it concrete by coming to, in his understanding, coming to know all of its causes. So the thing you think of as reality, or the the thing that is reality, is abstract to Hegel, so you already see that it's flipped on its head. And the thing he's going to create with his sorcery is concrete and is actual. It's the shift from the the real to the actual. And he has a whole discourse on actuality where the difference between real and actual is real is what, what happens to be and is out there. Actual is what is and has been and is being created. Actual is that which has been actualized by the activity of conscious beings. The step in the middle that lets you know all of the missing causes, that lets you understand the thing in its full, is negation. Remember that negative theology that I kind of started with and the negative thinking it becomes? This is where the negative thinking comes from. It's negation. So to negate the Hegel doesn't mean to say that something is wrong. It means to say that your understanding is incomplete, like I just went through. He had kind of a famous example with apples that's somewhat stupid. If you have this apple and that apple, maybe one's red, maybe one's green, you're like, they're different, but they're both apples. And so what you do is you obliterate the concept of particular apples and go to a more universal concept of apples, and so, the opposing apples, by fixating on apples, you realize that the, the opposition is an illusion. They're all part of the same thing. You could then take that a step up. You have an apple and an orange. All the apples are like appleness. All the oranges are like orangeness. You've already done it. But lo, 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 lo and behold, they're both fruit. And you just keep moving up. The, uh, this is literally the idea, but it's that you're trying to find all of the historical causes that brought a thing to be, not just trying to categorize objects. And the way that you do that is that it's not that your understanding is wrong, it's that it's incomplete. So in other words, it's not that you're technically wrong, it's that Hegel knows more than you and you need to listen to him. Which means his method produces guruship, which means his method is cult practice. And it happens to attract grifters and abusive psychopaths who know that they can take advantage of people, con men, if you will. And it's all about this strange usage of the terms abstract, negative and concrete. Hegel called these things abstract because their true causes aren't yet known. Negation is seeing that there's more than just what's there, obviously. It's not a fully universal situation. You're looking at some particular thing. It's not the whole thing. Your goal to return to God is to get rid of all the distinctions and get back to the whole. Concretizing or making it concrete for Hegel is seeing all the structural causes that made it come to be that way. And he referred to this process, speaking of this whole idea that it latches on to these other magisteria of faith and reason, he called it a system of science, or in German, System der Wissenschaft. This follows from another trick, another linguistic trick, this one in German. It turns out that one of the people that Hegel derived a lot of his thought from was a German that you've probably never heard of. He was a theologian, uh, a, I would say Lutheran, but he was a wizard, and that's the problem. He was a fake Lutheran. He was a hermetic Lutheran. So he was actually a wizard posing as a Lutheran theologian by the name of uh, Friedrich Oettinger. And Oettinger said that the true definition of wissen, or knowing, or knowledge, is knowing the whole in terms of its parts and the parts in terms of the whole in which it is a part which is a circular form of reasoning. Do I have? No, I don't. If, the, if you got the graphic of the snake, put the graphic of the snake up. If you don't have it, you don't. This is a circular reasoning. It's a snake eating its own tail, what the Greeks called the Ouroboros. I don't know if we have the picture for it or not. If we don't, you can imagine a snake eating its own tail. It's not that complicated. It's really a simple image. Um, in the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel actually makes clear. He says explicitly that every standpoint other than the absolute, which has no distinctions left in it, Every single standpoint other than the absolute, which is the mind of God itself, of course, this is about knowing on his terms, is partial or false, and therefore must be abandoned. So if you're not fully on board in his program, by the way, this is what cults do, if you're not fully on board with Hegel's understanding of the world, then you have a partial or false knowledge. That's the exact characterization of his first major work in his system of philosophy. That is, it's a small g Gnostic. It operates on Gnosticism. It's wizardry. And this is why we have to understand the negation of the real. We can't make anybody believe what Hegel's talking about unless we get the real out of the way by calling it abstract and replacing it with the thing that passed through his filter and became concrete and therefore better knowledge. I'll give you a good example of that in a little bit, but I don't want to distract from this flow. The real, like I said before, must be negated in order to make space for the actual, which is not real it's synthetic it's concrete it's been actualized it's been made to come into being by who by the sorcerer who projected it out into the future said this is the place we want to be created reflexive conditions so that the problem reaction solution would land you there it is a self-fulfilling prophecy this is wizardry this is sorcery and it poses effectively as science And it poses effectively as Christianity, Judaism, and all the other faiths. A philosopher by the name of Eric Fogelin wrote a very important essay that I only recently had the opportunity to finally get my hands on and read. It's called Hegel, A Study in Sorcery. So you can guess that Eric Fogelin was not a big fan of Hegel. I think, in fact, what he did was saw straight through Hegel, and I think that this is very well borne out by a work by other people like Glenn Alexander McGee and others. To quote Fogelin on Hegel, he says, "...the sorcerer's work is, quote, replacing the first reality of experience by the second reality of imaginative construction, and then endowing the imaginary reality with the appearance of truth by letting it absorb pieces of first reality." The Baudrillardian term or the simulacrity term for second reality is hyperreality. This is exactly all we've been talking about all day today so far. Foglund describes this a little further, quoting Hegel directly. He says, the movement of dialectical knowledge, and this is Hegel's words, is the circle that runs back into itself, presupposing the beginning it reaches in the end. It's circular logic. It's the snake eating its own tail. Foglin's commentary on this structuring of logic by Hegel is that once you have entered the magic circle the sorcerer has drawn around himself, you are lost. And this is what I need you to understand, is with these hyper-real constructions that we must get reality out of the way so that they can dra- drag you into, is you've been pulled into something that I've been calling the wizard's circle following Fogland. And in the wizard circle, you're lost. I want you to think of it as if there was actually a real wizard standing here and he drew a great big circle around you, around all of us. Incantations on the ground, arcane symbols, just some German jerk, I don't know, Klaus Schwab, whatever, World Economic Forum symbol on the branding, whatever you want. Hammer and sickle, a swastika big circle, arcane symbols, etc. You're in the wizard's circle now. I want you to think of it like there's a big bubble or a dome, a magic force field. So you're inside of like a hemisphere, a bubble. And when you try to look out through it, it bends the light. It distorts your view of reality. So all you can see in actual reality is what the sorcerer wants you to see. So COVID's a big emergency. The sorcerer wants you to see it's a big emergency. So you get tons of push notifications about every single person in your local area that got sick, every single person that died. Somebody died in Tennessee, somebody died in Arizona, somebody died, eight people have died. Again, 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 again. All you can see is what the wizard wants you to see. And in Fogland's words, when you've been drawn into the wizard's circle, which is the wizard's interpretation of the world that they are projecting from its beginning to its end, to make it come true, when you are in that circle, you are lost. The only thing you can do is get out of the circle. You must break the framing that the wizard has put you in. So, so long as you are in hyper-reality, to use the language of the conference, you don't know what's happening. We call that being blue-pilled. Your reality is negated. If you are still believing CNN or even Fox, You are blue-pilled. Your reality is negated. Your television is telling you how to interpret the world in front of you so that your senses can't do it, so that your senses are lost. What did Fogelin say? Replacing the first reality of experience, those are your lying eyes, by the second reality of imaginative construction and endowing the imaginative reality with the appearance of truth by letting it absorb the pieces of the first reality. I need to convince you that this is how these magic religions or secret religions or esoteric religions work, that they are real, that they're present, and that every time they get exposed in history, they change forms and come back. And this is a story as old as Genesis because that's what Genesis 3 is about. Its purpose is to replace the real with the synthetic simulacrum, and then to get you to live there. What is the simulacrum? It is a social construction. So what do they do? Gender is a social construction. Race is a social construction. Social construction this, social construction that. What are the people on the far reactionary right saying? Freedom, liberty is a social construction. That's what they're saying. It's fake. The Constitution is a social construction. Inalienable rights is a social construction. And what that actually means, because the words that they use narrow in meaning over time, to their point, is that it's a political construction. And once it's a political construction, you're doing politics, I'm doing politics, your scientific methodology, your exegetical methodology is out the window, it's just politics by another means, and here's all the problems yours have made through history. And they relentlessly browbeat how racist and sexist and classist and bourgeois and whatever else you've been all along, how against the German people, how against the Chinese people, you hear the same language and same uh, concepts again and again and again. When you have a simulacrum of, say, Christian faith, with gnosis posing as Christian faith, you hear better definitions, better understandings of Christian concepts, like love thy neighbor. Loving thy neighbor means strapping a mask on your face and ignoring your mom while she dies. Love thy neighbor means shutting down your neighbor's business for the greater good. We're all in this together. Love thy neighbor means closing your church. Love thy neighbor means something completely different than anybody would possibly recognize it. Love thy neighbor means indulging counter-racism or anti-racism to undo racism. Not encountering individuals one heart to another and reconciling that way. It also involves mystical interpretations. You know, everybody knows about these Bible codes. If you read the Bible upside down and backwards and sideways, then you can find some numbers that tell you that the lottery is going to be won by a Chinese person on Tuesday. You know, that kind of crap. No lie, though. But some of the mystical interpretations are like Jesus was a wizard. And if you do these weird practices, then you can attain powers like that. Everybody hears the word Kabbalah or Kabbalah which by the way, do you know, where, you know what English word derives straight from that? Kabbal. They hear that word and they think, oh, that's Jewish stuff, and don't know that there's a long history of Christian Kabbalah as well. It's mysticism. Reinterpretations of what the actual source texts mean to, to express mystical concepts. What's a simulation of science look like on the other hand? What's it look like when Gnosis poses as science or reason? It's expert consensus, which another postmodernist who warned us about this, Jean-Francois Leotard, in his usual upside-down way, called a legitimation by pyrology. Fancy words, which means all the experts agree, and so everybody goes along with it. Or all your friends agree, so everybody goes along with it. Scientism, science can answer all the questions. We can create homo deus, we can make man into God. Man is a hackable animal. Those are quotes from Yuval Noah Harari from the World Economic Forum, or or paraphrases I should say. It's It's science in which, yeah, the scientific method's still being used, but we're only gonna publish morally acceptable conclusions or ideologically acceptable conclusions. There are actually methodological ways to expose this, and most of the woke literature that depends on actual, say, studies, quanti- you know, quantitative studies, fail something that's called a funnel plot, and when you fail a funnel plot, which is a form, a, a technique within a, meta, a certain type of meta-analysis, what it means is that you're only publishing the results, so maybe I come out and do a bunch of scientific experiments and you do a bunch of experiments on a single topic, and you find out all this stuff and I find out all that stuff, like this drug works, that drug, this drug doesn't work, and they only publish the ones that where the drug didn't work. They just The other ones didn't meet peer review. They had bad methodology. whatever. They exclude the ones that have the wrong conclusions. This is what Gnosis looks like when when it's posing as science. There's experts who decide which science counts and which science doesn't count, and only the kind that counts gets published. That, I can tell you from great personal experience, is exactly how academia works today and has worked for some time. And it's range in which the fields that that's been happening has been spreading very steadily from the 1980s forward to the point now where it is literally in every issue of every major medical journal, which will cost many, many lives and cause untold suffering. The the Russians, or actually I should say the Soviets, had a term for this, or the analysis of the Soviets, which is called Lysenkoism. They had a fraud scientist that did Soviet agriculture and Soviet biology, which is better than bourgeois Western biology. Turns out it also starved probably between Soviet Union and China as many as 40 million people because it turns out it doesn't work. That's what Gnosis looks like posing as science. It's politics pretending to be science, usually totalitarian. Because the goal of these things is to displace genuine truth and replace it with gnosis, which is the belief that you're God. As we heard straight from their book. That is, the goal is to establish the hegemony of the secret religions and depose the things, truth and faith, that would stop them from gaining power. And to make that the hegemony of the West. In other words, the thing we all have to bend the knee to, or bow to, or raise the fist for, or whatever dumb thing they want us to do. Eat bugs, live in a toilet, get flushed when we're not useful. Whatever it happens to be. That is, this thing that we're fighting, woke, world economic forum, communism, Nazism even, They are all modern and postmodern manifestations of the esoteric faiths attempting to become a single world religion because they believe there is only one world religion and they're all pieces of that. We call it today sustainability, a new sensibility, that was Herbert Marcuse's word for it, a sustainable and inclusive future, blah, blah, blah. Gnosis in the modern era and the postmodern era is mostly located in politics. And this is mostly due to Marx but also due to Hegel, both of whom were very interested in politics, but nowhere near as much as Marx. So what's this hyper-reality thing then that we keep mentioning, this second reality, this false simulacrum of real? What is it? These people believe that they have seen the mind of God. They know the mind of God. They know the mind of God and its plans. They know what humanity is supposed to look like. They know what the future is supposed to look like. They know what the world is supposed to look like and they simulate it. They make a simulacrum of the things that we have in the world in order to simulate their vision of utopia or the arrived kingdom, just like Andy talked about earlier today. To get there, they have to, again, negate the real. They have to use variations on negative theology or negative thinking to tear apart the world that exists to make room for the world they want to project in. First, reality has to be removed broken to pieces, the pieces are to be absorbed into second reality so it's believable and second reality proceeds and we call it hyper-reality until it actualizes as the kingdom. That's what these people are trying to build. This is a very old religion that's come back in another form and we must understand it for what it is. We must understand it for what it is or we can't possibly fight it. Hegel's hyperreality was this concrete idealism. We had the perfect idea of what a perfect society with perfect people would look like. He used negative thinking with his structure of the dialectic, as it's called. The goal is to understand all the causes. In some sense, therefore, you understand what the effects will be, and you can write a true science of history. So a good example I made up a while back of Concrete Thinking, I could do this with critical race theory, with systemic racism, I could give you you know, the ideas of, of Marx with, with systemic classism, but I made up a different one called critical car theory that makes it much more understandable, which actually is applicable because Mr. Buttigieg wants us to have zero accidents. So the question is, if let's say that through some tragedy, somebody was in a car accident, something bad happened, they were run over by a car or something else, in the road today who's at fault this is a very abstract thing well the guy driving the car hit the guy he's at fault or the guy stepped out blindly wasn't paying attention he's at fault simple that guy or that guy are the two involved we figure out the story one of them no 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 that's an abstract understanding it doesn't understand all the causes you don't understand we live in a society that demands that we drive cars if there were no cars as a historical object of our time, or no cars being driven by people they were perfectly autonomous and never made mistakes, and nobody could walk out into the street because they can't leave their house, then nobody would get run over by cars. So there are more causes. There is an entire culture, an entire industry, an entire economy, an entire mindset and worldview and ideology built up around the idea that people drive cars to get places, and that we have things like streets. And so the car industry that makes the cars and sells them, the dealerships that profit from it, all the different companies that are complicit in making the parts to make the car industry work, the fossil fuel industry for fueling the cars, or I guess the windmills or whatever, but probably not, they're not blamed for anything. The windmills are off the hook. Electric car powered by windmill is okay. Also one's powered by coal, but not one's powered by uranium. Various jokes, don't take them too seriously. Every industry that supports a culture of driving cars is somehow complicit. Now, what if we find out the driver was actually taking a drink of his coffee and it distracted him, he wasn't looking at the road? Well, now there's a whole industry that produces coffee and the whole thing that leads people to believe we should be drinking coffee and sourcing coffee from different countries around the world. They're complicit in this person getting run over. What if the person that was running out into the street was going to cross the street because they wanted to go to a doctor's appointment? No, doctors are now implicated, the whole medical system. As a matter of fact, what you're going to find if you keep following this systemic line of thinking, the concrete line of thinking, removing distinctions from blame or fault in this case, is that everybody's at fault. And in fact, everybody's at fault because everybody supports a system that must change now. And the new system will not have cars will not have accidents of this kind, and it'll be great. Because why? Because we know that this thing and that thing are the same, and here's the problems yours causes, and look at how much problem it causes, and it's supported by a system that does this. So if we have total system change, which just so happens to involve lots of intermediate practical steps that are systems of control, then these bad things won't happen anymore. That's an example of this concrete thinking actually for something that you can get a sense of how stupid it is, how comical it is, how farcical it is. But it's a lot subtler when they start saying that, well, racism has impacts. And even if we get rid of individual racism and we get rid of uh, institutional racism, outcomes are still different. There must be causes for that that we're not seeing. We have to find more of the causes. Well, there's an underlying culture of racism, and all of a sudden it becomes subtle and you don't see it. Preposterous with the cars, subtle and tricky with the race, because you're more susceptible to that argument. And that's how it works. Critical car theory and critical race theory are the same theory. With Karl Marx, his hyper-reality was communism. The tool he uses is dialectical leftism, which I defined previously in June. You can go back and watch those talks. They were awesome, <laughs> in my own opinion. His structural reality that he describes is that there's a structural class society, like structural car society or structural race society. He posits that man is actually alienated from who he really is, which is a perfect social man, his species being, he called it, a man who lives for his own species. Communism is his hyper reality. How do we get there? Through the negative. You have the abstract concept of this class society, we don't understand the causes of history properly unless you're a socialist and you've adopted the gnosis, and what do we do, in his words, ruthless criticism of all that exists. This gives birth to critical theory, which is better known or better phrased as critical Marxism. It said that capitalism and consumerism and advertising are creating a hyperreality, and thus we understand kind of Baudrillard's point, he was not a critical theorist, but he's in the same kind of milieu of thought. And they had a point, but they botched it because they just blamed capitalism like a bunch of leftists. The idea, though, was to get past that by critiquing all aspects of existing society, including the very terms that society is written on. In other words, to adopt full-blown, full-throated negative thinking. You can't describe the society that's good, you can only criticize the society that we have for not being good enough. This led to derivative hyper-realities, like the world described by critical race theory, or the world anticipated, which is racially just, or by queer theory, which is going to be sexually just. And just in terms of gender treatment. This describes, or how this came to be really, is described by, by Frary's concept. Paulo Frary, this educator who changed everything. He's the father of woke. He returned to this very early idea for that Hegel got from Oettinger about about knowledge, about knowing. The knowing has to be something that's considered in terms of parts and wholes and their relationship, this whole shift back into the wizard's frame, into the circle. So he took criticality in this regard from Marx's ruthless criticism of all that exists and made it actually the way people think. There can be no imposition of a positive view according to Ferrari, because that would cause you to impose it, in his words, which would make you necessarily right-wing. The revolution must be perpetual because if it stops, it becomes the status quo, bureaucratic and sclerotic, death-loving and necrophiliac, he said. And so the revolution must be perpetual, never stops, pure criticism. And this relentless, constant denunciation of the world, perfect negative thinking he called utopian thinking. It's to destroy reality in order to insert, a hyper-reality that they don't even bother to describe by the time we get to that. The goal at that point is just to conquer existing reality by teaching your children to complain that everything is racism, everything is sexism, everything is harmful, everything is trauma. This is that negative theology, negative thinking. In woke, it's really simple, it's just not that. What do you want? Not that. You want chicken tenders? No. What do you want? Not that. Do you want to go to school? Not that. It's racist. You name it, it's racist, not that. It's so frankly dumb. This is actually the denunciation that Ferrari said is the mark of a true critical consciousness. Denounce everything for the dehumanizing forms and domesticating modes of being that it contains. First you learn to see them, you become a wizard then you do relentless negativity, and as another critical Marxist, Herbert Marcuse, said, the negative thinking will necessarily turn positive by releasing the ideal society contained within the existing society when we criticize all the aspects of the existing society we don't like. What does negative theology sound like more purely? I mean, we already have a sense, just to kind of give you some historical we could say God is not that, God is not that, God is not that, that's very easy. But if we go to Book eleven from the Corpus Hermeticum to see other Hermeticists use it, the mind of God, the nos, as it's spelled, it's the Greek word for mind, with a capital N, proper noun, so this is the mind of God speaking allegedly to the god Hermes, whom the Egyptians called Toth. Eternity maintains all this, whether by necessity, providence, nature, or whatever anyone may suppose, and this whole is God in activity, an unsurpassable power, to which one should not compare anything human or divine. Thus, Hermes, you should never believe that anything above or below is similar to God, since then you will stray from the truth, for nothing is like that which has no like, and is alone and one." That's what negative theology in its pure expression sounds like in one of these magic religions. God is the most high? No, higher than that. God is merciful and just? No, those are positive attributes. He's beyond mercy, beyond justice. He positively transcends those. In fact, He positively transcends He. It's that which is greater than that. It's not that. You say God is this, it is not that. He's the creator. No, he's also the created. No, he's also creation, but no, he's transcendent to all of that at the same time. Marx obviously complicates this thing, and we'll get into that because he's a Satanist, basically. We'll come back to that. But this same concept tracks all the way through Hegel's thought, through Marx's thought, through the critical theorists, and down to the woke, just like I just said, We have this big, big G Gnostic influence of being in the prison of being with Marx and it all gets a little upside down and hard to follow. And that's, I think, how he tricked people for 150 years into thinking that he was an economist. But the idea is that negative theology became in the modern era through Hegel and through Marx's negative thinking. Hegel was actually just a theologian. He trained at at a seminary. This is true. The Tubergen Stift, a very famous school of wizardry posing as a seminary in Swabian, Germany. Marx, however, was not a theologian in the traditional sense. He did something a little bit different. So he shifted this purely into negative thinking, the ruthless criticism of all that exists. In other words, that apophatic theology takes place for the goal of the apoptosis of society. And now you know why I bothered with the stupid big word so I could make that stupid comment. What is apoptosis? Does anybody know? That's The cell death, your cells actually have a timeline. Your living cells have a clock, and when it ticks, they die. They don't reproduce again. Programmed cell death is called apoptosis. It's funny that it popped while I did that. That's what this negative thinking is about. The programmed death of the existing society so that the ideal society can emerge from within it. We can see this in Hegel on his idea of negation and negativity. The dialectic he frames out isn't this thesis antithesis nonsense. It's abstract negative concrete. So negative thinking is the core. We're going to get more by negating. That's literally his message in a bottle. And you think that's stupid. You find the negative or the opposite of the thing within the thing itself. You have this stuff, but there's not to understand that it's this. You have to understand that it's not this. What do I mean? Well, we can't even understand what being is unless we compare it to nothing. So there's somehow the opposite of being is nothing and it's contained within it because that's how you think of it. You can't think of an apple without thinking, well, it's different from other apples. In other words, he understands that there's distinctions. But what he says is that those have to be lifted above or sublated, or in the German, the word is Aufheben, to find more causes or more broad categorization that returns to the one category of all things, which is the one or the all is how they usually spell it in hermetic literature with the capitalized and all three letters of all capitalized because that makes you know that it's really real. But what he's done is now this concrete thinking that he's replacing reality with is structural thinking. You're going to understand it in terms of the structure, which is his model, I should say, his theory or his system of science for understanding things. So you're going to abandon reality and understand his interpretation. You hear this in Foglin criticizing Hegel again in Hegel's Study of Sorcery. He writes, "In order to be an effective, in order to be effective as a magic opus, the system of science—that's what Hegel called his body of work, by the way." had to satisfy two conditions. One, the operation in second reality, that's hyper-reality, remember, that's your simulacrum, your mere simulacrity, the operation in second reality had to look as if it were an operation in first reality. Two, the operation in second reality had to escape control and judgment by the criteria of first reality. In other words, it can't be subjected to reason, it can't be subjected to scientific experimentation or testing, to checking it against recalcitrant reality. It can't be subjected to exegesis that's rigorous. It has to stay in the hermeneutical fog. It has to, because operation in second reality has to escape control and judgment by the criteria of first reality. This thing you do that you call science, It's politics by other means, so you can't judge it, except as a form of politics, or else you're a chauvinist, and this thing we do is politics, so it's also science, and they flip it over just like that. Feminist glaciology becomes real glaciology, and real glaciology becomes masculinist glaciology. That's exactly the way it's formulated in that glacier paper that I made fun of. Fogelin says, only if he, meaning the wizard, satisfied these two conditions could the author of the system, system of science, hope to make the imaginary results of his operation acceptable as real resolutions to real problems in the first reality. So we have problem, reaction, solution. Nobody's going to believe the solution unless you do this trick first. That's what Fogelin's saying. The only way you can do that is by removing the conditions of first reality. In other words, you have to negate real. You have to negate the real in order to impose the fake. That's, I mean, all this crap I'm saying is complicated, but that's really it's all, it's all it's about. You have to find ways to make reality negligible or evil so that you can impose a fake solution that people will accept by absorbing pieces of the first reality and all this complicated philosophy stuff. Marx talks about this again in terms of the ruthless criticism of all that exists. Where did he get that idea? From another wizard, Goethe. One of Marx's favorite hobbies was quoting from his favorite poet, who was Goethe. He quoted frequently from the play, or the the, the poem, I should say, Faust. Which, if you know anything, you think, well, that sounds devilish. Yeah. But Marx didn't quote Goethe specifically. And I actually got called out for this at one point. I said, Marx quoted Goethe saying this, because I got that straight off of Marxist.org, which says, Marx quoted Goethe saying this. And they said, no, you need to recognize. Marx is quoting a character in Goethe's story. And the character is Mephistopheles, the voice of Satan. And that's who Marx actually quoted. And why did Marx say ruthless criticism of all that exists? Because Mephistopheles, in Goethe's telling, says all that exists deserves to perish. The voice of Satan in this play by Goethe says that. And so the Marxist definition of truth is that truth is relative because all that exists deserves to perish, and now your everything's relative, truth is gone, you've negated the real, and all of a sudden the Marxist hyperreality can be the science of history. And the real truth can become that which is Marxism, or that which forwards Marxism as a system of praxis. Goethe, by the way, was a contemporary of Hegel, and Hegel sucked up to him relentlessly. What Marx said is that you get what you get through this negative thinking approach, this ruthless criticism, is positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement. That's in the economic philosophic manuscripts. He also phrases it in the Communist Manifesto that you get the abolition of private property, which in both cases he defines as the proper definition of communism. The ideal society that they simulate through socialism is communism. The full quote is very hermetic. Now that you've had a little taste of hermetic thought, you'll get much more later. This is what Marx actually said. Communism as the positive transcendence of private property, as hu- excuse me, human self-estrangement, and therefore as the real appropriation of the human essence by and for man. Communism, therefore, as the complete return of man to himself as a social, that is, human being. Complete return of man to himself. The hermetic goal is for man to realize that he's God and return to that understanding. The communist, because there's only one, is God, for Marx. A return accomplished consciously in embracing the entire wealth of previous development. All of the other ideas are actually our ideas. This communism is fully developed. Naturalism equals humanism and as fully developed humanism equals naturalism. Why do we have to have a sustainable, inclusive future? There, that's why. It is the genuine resolution of the conflict between man and nature and between man and man, the true resolution of the strife between existence and essence, between objectification and self-confirmation, between freedom and necessity, between the individual and the species, all these contradictions, but the individual and the species, you versus the collective, Between freedom and necessity, between the individual and the species, communism is the riddle of history solved and it knows itself to be the solution. Gnostic. That's gnosis. This is the end of the circle that presupposes itself as its beginning. He goes on and says, The entire movement of history, just as communism's actual act of genesis... The birth act of its empirical existence is therefore, for its thinking consciousness, the comprehended and known process of its own becoming." You project the thing into the future that you want, you simulate it and force people until it gets socially constructed and reified and is real now or actual. Trajectory in negative thinking from Hegel to Marx to the critical theorists is, tr- is visible in the critical theorists, the critical Marxists. Max Horkheimer, the creator of the critical theory, in 1969 was interviewed and asked to explain why he created the critical theory on television. And he said, the critical theory I conceived later is based on the idea that one cannot determine what is good. What a good, a free society would look like from within the society we now live. You have to have knowledge from outside. He says, we lack the means, but in our work, we can bring up the negative aspects of this society which we want to change. His contemporary, Theodore Adorno, said, you can't have a positive idea of what utopia looks like. You can only cast it in the negative. He says, in fact, the quote directly is, one may not cast a picture of utopia in a positive manner. He said that would be akin to making a graven image. Which is the same thing Ferrari says, that if you know what you want in the world, you will impose it on others and necessarily become right wing. The communists called this the problem of reproduction with the existing society. Existing societies tend to reproduce themselves. So what you can do, you can't get away from that cycle. We educate our kids, we raise our kids, we teach our kids, we mentor our kids to reproduce the society, to get jobs on the society, to, to validate the society. And It reproduces itself. You can't do that. All you can do is get your kids to criticize every aspect of the society till they hate it, till it falls apart. Then you have the space to push something new in. That's their solution to the problem of reproduction, and that's what's going on in our schools. Herbert Marcuse took this very literally. Like I told you, he said the negative thinking becomes positive. Does that sound like real or wizardry? Obviously, he says negative thinking, this is from his essay on liberation in 69, negative thinking draws whatever force it may have from its empirical basis, so there's the lie. We're studying reality better than you. The actual human condition, actual, right? In in, in the given society and the given possibilities to transcend this condition, all he talks about are the possibilities, right? This society's bad, there are other possibilities. To enlarge the realm of freedom, in the sense negative thinking is, by virtue of its own internal concepts, positive. Oriented toward and comprehending a future which is contained in the present. And in this containment, the future appears as possible liberation." So he said that this critical aspect, this criticizing everything, this negative thinking, constitutes a second dimension of thought that allows them to jump over you, stuck in one dimension of thought. It allows them to do this relentless, horizontal critique of all that exists. That's racist. This is a problem. Dehumanizing forms. Everything's political. Teaching is a political act. It's all the same crap. Meanwhile, they do a vertical ascent by seizing power over the thing they're criticizing. And he describes the dialectic. Another critical Marxist, Paolo Freire, says the same thing. I mentioned that he said that you announce a new world through denunciation. That's negative thinking. You never say what the new world's going to look like, but you can only do it if you have consciousness, if you've been conscientized. In other words, if you are a Gnostic, if you know, because you've had a glimpse of the truth. He said there is no annunciation without denunciation, which is bullcrap. By the way, I released a book yesterday or something. I announced it. Did I denounce a single thing? No, it's a lie. There is no annunciation without denunciation, just as every denunciation generates annunciation. Does that sound like he's talking about real stuff or just wizardry? Without the latter, hope is impossible. In an authentic utopian vision, remember we just heard you can't say what that looks like. In an authentic utopian vision, however, hoping does not mean folding one's arms and waiting, Waiting is only possible when one filled with hope seeks to, through reflective action to achieve that announced future, which is being born within the denunciation, death and rebirth. But if you're listening closely, what he just did was he ripped off the definition of faith given in chapter one verse, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 1 of Hebrews, and twisted it into a Gnostic parasite of faith by characterizing it as hope. When one is filled with hope, they seek through reflective action to achieve the announced future, which is being born within the denunciation of that which exists. That's wizardry. This is sorcery that they're teaching your children when they teach this method. This is woke negative thinking. Paulo Freire is definitively the father of woke to be woke means to be conscientized in Ferrari's ideas or ways of thinking, his critical consciousness. It doesn't mean more or less than that. It means therefore to be able to detect dehumanizing forms and domesticating modes of being in everything and to denounce them in a way that suggests without ever saying what it is that something better could be. That's racist. Well, what do, we, so what do you want instead? Racial justice. What does it look like? Give me your job. You ever heard a description of racial justice? You ever heard a description of social justice? Anybody ever told you what the world's going to look like when we have that? No. Because they don't know. Because what it looks like is an endless sequence of not that. And so when they take power and they screw up, not that either. And there's another revolution and somebody else takes power that's deeper in the same mindset. And when that screws up, not that either. And by the way, it's screwed up because the reactionaries, the conservatives, the normal people wouldn't let us do it right. So give us more power, we have more demands. We have to go from regular social emotional learning to transformative to culturally affirming because in the culturally affirming social emotional learning literature, which by the way is brand new, you'll hear about a lot of it next year because it's gonna be everywhere and it's too new for you to know about now. The Biden's DOE knows all about it though. Transformative social emotional learning, which is as old as 2019, is already criticized for being a good step in the first step in the right direction, but going nowhere near far enough in its critical consciousness. The thing that's three years old is a good first step because they know it better than you do. And the thing that already is is not good enough. So what do you want? Not that. When I say that woke comes from Ferrari, I mean it. When I first started going after woke stuff back with the Grievance Studies Affair, people said, well, what in the world is this social justice stuff like, really? You're an academic. Don't just tell me about the papers. What is it? And I had found this page on Wikipedia reading all I could to just suck in ideas at the time. I was brand new to all this. I was trying to learn. Wikipedia is not a good source, by the way, but I was desperate. And I'm looking through this and I come, come across this article about critical constructivist epistemology that details the ideas of an educator named Joe Kincholo, who is in direct lineage from Paulo Ferreri. In critical constructivist epistemology, which is a bunch of damn words, I read that and I was like, it's this. And then I told people that and they're like, that's not a very good description. It is a good description. It's what it is. It's a fusion of critical, c- critical that's critical theory, constructivist, that's postmodernism, into a method of knowing. By the way, we're, since, since we're talking about Gnosticism, do you know what Ferreri referred to as necessary to being woke? He didn't call it woke, but to being conscientized? A certain, and I quote, gnosiological attitude toward the world. G-N-O-S-I, blah, blah, blah. Gnosis-based attitude. You must be a Gnostic in order to denounce correctly so that it announces the possibility of a better future. That's what woke is. Woke is... Postmodern and modern, simultaneously Gnosticism, derived from the interpretations of these same esoteric secret religions through Hegel and Marx, down through the years through the critical theorists, eventually to people like Paolo Ferreri, Judith Butler, Kimberly Crenshaw and critical race theory and so on. and Joe Kinchelow with his critical constructivist epistemology. So what woke is is not that. Like I said, this negative thinking is not that. It negates the real by saying whatever you have, no, not that, Um, that makes me unhappy, that causes trauma, that causes harm, I need the white people removed from this space because the very presence of a white person takes up space and reminds me of a white dominant society. So now we have to have racial caucuses on college campuses, we have to strongly regulate admissions for diversity, blah, blah, blah. It's simplistic complaining where what you do is you always point your complaining towards structural power that's been cooked up by these theorists, which are concrete understandings, or in other words, what they are is the the hyper-realities constructed by wizards in order to give themselves a wizard circle where nobody knows what to do about it, and they get to seize power in the meantime. The goal is to frame everything they see that they don't like, they're not that, always in terms of a dehumanizing form, like racism, sexism, transphobia, whatever, critique it on those grounds. Anything they want to control has to be dragged in the wizard circle, which is why in Race Marxism, which I published in February, I wrote that the definition of critical race theory should be calling everything you want to control racist until you control it. You find a thing you want to control, you need to bring it into the wizard circle, so you call it racist, That's shocking, people don't know what it means, they're confused, they're in the circle, they're lost, you start denouncing them, you start morally badgering them, people don't want to be associated with racism, and until you have full control over it, you keep doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that, that's why it is. This is just Gnosticism and Hermeticism in operation. The goal is to negate the real, to create a structural, hyperreal simulation and it works on anything. Tomboys? Racist. Non-binary? Racist. Rock climbing? Racist. Fishing? Racist. Outside? Racist. Dogs? Racist. There's articles for all those. We just learned that Shark Week is not only racist, but it also has employed too many people named Mike. Which is somehow proof of more racism. Because apparently white people are named Mike and black people don't carry the name Mike or something. And it was allegedly a scientific study that found that the Discovery Channel hired too many people named Mike. When I wrote those fake articles for the Grievance Studies Affair, we would have howled with laughter at the idea of writing a paper of systemic mikeism That too many people named Mike have too many positions of authority in society, and that reveals a systemic oppression against people with other names than Mike. We would have laughed to death. And we never would have believed that it could have been published, much less in a scientific study of a TV show. So we finally, with woke, actually get to what Marx wanted. We actually get to ruthless, or really pointless, criticism of all that exists. Because everything that exists deserves to perish in the mouth of Mephistopheles. The trick, and I've already pointed to this, is that this can't be wrong. When you only rely on these negative denunciations, you can't be wrong. You never have to forward a positive idea of your own. You can't. That's cataphatic or whatever the heck it is, cataphatic, catasomething, theology. That's positive theology. You can't do it. You can't name a positive vision or you'll impose it. They never have to say why theirs is right. They only have to say our things are in this weird way that if you believe me with this paragraph of text, nobody wants to read the same. Our things are the same essentially if you understand it as a Gnostic. But yours does all these evil things that I can point at and you don't even know what's going on so give me the power over your science. Give me the power over your church. Give me the power over your seminary. Give me the power over your children. They never make a positive argument because then you'd be able to criticize them. They forward and risk nothing. It's like you're playing poker with somebody sitting at a table, and every time they bet, they bet nothing, and you throw a 20. It doesn't matter if they win or lose any given game, they just need to keep you playing, and eventually you go broke. And you're like, in the wizard circles, so you're like, here's another 20, okay. They're throwing Monopoly money on the table, and you're like, good enough. This is exactly what Marx called his scientific socialism, Wissenschaftlicher Sozialismus, which is only comprehensible by socialist man. If you're not socialist man, if you haven't awakened to communist consciousness, according to Marx, you can't understand it. So you'll criticize it, but you're wrong. You can only understand it when you agree with it. This is the same as what Hegel called his split between reason and understanding, two levels of knowing. Vernunft was reason, and forstand in German is understanding. And this, these two, in their dialectical interplay, creates his so-called system of science. There's the reason, the higher level knowing, and then there's just that stupid you understanding it by actually knowing what's going on. And that's lower. This is what Plato referred to as scientia, science. So science is kind of true to form, as much as it pains me to say that, but I think that it actually matured, and we can recover the word on this case. But Plato's Scientia was exactly the same as Hegel's program. Vernunft is reason, it's higher-level understanding, and then you have lower-level understanding, which is verstand, literally understanding in German. Scientia for Plato was separated into episteme, knowledge, over Dianoia, which is something like know-how. It's the knowledge inside of technê or technical knowledge, ability to do or understand. It's the exact not kind of the same. It is literally the same to the point where it's like, I bet Hegel just read Plato and wrote that down. In German, so people didn't know that he stole it. This is the same as when Max Horkheimer says, well, the problem is that we can't criticize the the, the existing society on its terms, so we need a critical theory that stands in opposition to traditional theory, which is a lower level of simple understanding of things that's one-dimensional. We need two-dimensional understanding that uses a critical theory. Exactly the same program. What this is, though, when you read Hegel, he confesses. The best part about Hegel is it turns out that he's almost painfully honest. Almost painfully transparent, when he explains the difference between vernunft and verstand, or scientia as uh, as episteme versus dianoia, what he said is that understanding, verstand, is missing, and I quote: "Magical thinking. You have to negate the real in order to insert magic. His so-called concrete understanding is that vernunft his Reason is where you get there. So for Hegel and those who follow him, like Marx and now the woke, one continuous line, three days of history, Hegel two days ago, Marx yesterday, woke today, Klaus Schwab tomorrow. You can see how they think of themselves by looking into Hegel's two biggest works on the concept of logic or logos, which should resonate with you for the reason that it resonates with you. Hegel, you have to remember, believed that he alone had completed logic. He alone truly understood Logos, because he was the third person of the Godhead, ascended to the second person of the Godhead by completing his project, his own Christ. So he has two works that are about logic. One's called the Encyclopedia Logic, one's called the Science of Logic. From the Science of Logic, he writes, the logic is to be understood as the system of pure reason. As the realm of pure thought, it's God's mind. Logos. This realm is the truth as it is without veil and for itself. It is permissible, therefore, to say that its content is the presentation of God as he is in his eternal being before the creation of nature in any finite spirit. By the way, you're the finite spirits. So this is the Logos, this is the Christ, and this is actually what he says is his science of logic. His science of logic is the Christ. This is his system that he's talking about, his completed logic, his system of science, which he alone claims to understand and has laid out through his body of works a pathway for other people to understand so they can be as he is and absorb back into the all at the end of history. So he's claiming that he knows the presentation of God without any veil, the absolute truth. He's claiming gnosis. He knows what truth is before creation, before the mundane world, before the fall. So he knows what it's supposed to look like when we fix it, when we bring it back to what it was originally supposed to be. So he's saying, I know what we really are. I know who we really are. And I know to what it is we must return. This is literally the Hermetic belief system. In other words, people like Hegel claim to know the presentation or mind of God because they're Gnostics, which is the point. Secret religion of the West. Gnosticism and Hermeticism and these various occult or esoteric faiths taking on forms in modern eras in terms of politics. But you can see this very clearly, that what I just claimed about Hegel, which may have sounded like a stretch, isn't that much of a stretch. We read from the Encyclopedia Logic, he writes, the philosophers are closer to the Lord than those who live by the crumbs of the spirit. And that reference to Luke is not a mistake. They read or write the cabinet orders of God in the original. It is their duty to write them down. The philosophers are the mystai who have been present at the decision in the innermost sanctuary. Hegel declared himself a philosopher. Then he said that the philosopher's job is to write down the mind of God exactly. That's what Hegel uses to describe his own philosophy. Then he says philosophers are the mistai who have been present at the decision in the innermost sanctuary. And you're like, what is that? Is it the holy of holies? What in the heck is a mysti? What is that word? Mysti means an initiate into a mystery. In other words, somebody who's adopted an esoteric faith. Somebody who has secret knowledge or gnosis. Remember what we saw in the Corpus Hermeticum's forward? That the knowledge that is gnosis is the belief that the man and the supreme are the same. The philosophers are closer to the Lord. It's their job to write down exactly the cabinet orders of God. This is how these people think of themselves. Why did I say megalomania at the beginning? This is why I said megalomania. Why did I say you need to pretend you're crazy to understand them? Bingo! There you go. But he said the misti. Not just the ones with the logic. Not just the ones who are with Christ. The misti actually is a reference You know in Tolkien where Aragorn's chasing the the hobbits through the field where the orcs stole them, and he finds the brooch from Lorien, the green leaf thing, and he's like, not idly do the leaves of Lorien fall. So he knows that this was a message that was sent to, you you know, they don't just fall, right? You don't drop a reference in the middle of a philosophy book like Mistai unless you're writing to initiates who know what it means. That's a code word. And some people reading it will know what it means, and most people reading it will be like, why is that there? It must mean this simple thing. The mysti refers to people in Greece, pre-Socratic Greece, who were induced into the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was an ancient Greek cult practice, probably orgiastic in nature. It was intended, quote, quoting from Martin Nilsson. To elevate man above the human sphere into the divine and assure his redemption by making him a god. And so conferring immortality upon him. So then when you go back and read Hegel, knowing he knows that. And he says the philosophers, me, are the mysti. They are people who went through secret rites to elevate man above the human sphere into the divine and to assure his redemption by making him a God. That's how Hegel thought of himself. That's what Hegel thought his philosophy was the cabinet orders of God, which it was his job and duty to write down. This is religion, but it's cult religion. It's not healthy religion. It's not real religion. It's cult. And now you see the difference between faith and gnosis. No man of faith would say things like this. The hubris. The Eleusinian mysteries referred to a process, in fact, of celebrating, mythologically speaking, the rescue of Persephone from Hades. By? Do you know who saved? Do you know your mythology? Do you know who went into Hades, to or into the underworld, to meet with Hades and rescue the daughter of Demeter, Persephone, from her imprisonment in hell? Do you know who it was? Hermes. The Hermetic god. What this Eleusinian Eleusinian mystery was about was a symbolic death and hermetic rebirth as a wizard that makes him into a god. And that's what Hegel decided to nod to in his explanation of philosopher's role in relationship to what he called logic, which is at the center of how his system of so-called science works. This is secret Esoteric religions posing as politics, posing as science, posing as faith. These are why, these secret religions are why reality must be negated and a hyper reality must be substituted. It's so that the wizards can die and be reborn through hermetic magic and with them the world. And what they get is secret gnosis and immortality by doing so. They get to reunion with God, as we'll hear more. In the future lectures I'm going to do, they get to be as God or God himself, depending on the interpretation. Because if there's no division in the perfectly negatively described God, you can't be as God because that would indicate distinction. There must be no distinction. Reality must be negated because reality refutes this completely. So for the wizards, reality has to be negated, which, remember, it doesn't mean said it's wrong, it has to be believed to be incomplete. So it must be superseded by their hyperreal creation. That's why they act the way they do. That's why they make the narratives they make. That's why they engage in what they call in the thought reform or the brainwashing or the cult indoctrination world milieu control. The entire environment around you must control you to understand the way that they want you to understand. In other words, you have to be in the wizard circle. Because they have to do this because if you actually were able to perceive reality and speak reality for yourself in language that you can comprehend and others can understand, it would break the spell. What the wizard actually controls is a constructed hyper-reality where he, has to, uh, where he gets to operate as a god and which he has to drag you into so you can't get out of it. That's why you're sitting here swimming around trying to figure out how you're racist because of a definition of complicity and systemic racism or systemic car theory where you're somehow an evil person because somebody else got hit by a car because you uphold a culture of car driving by having a car or by thinking cars are a good way even if you don't have one. So reality has to be replaced with its simulation or a a simulation of reality, which means you have to take the major pieces of reality and replace them with simulacra. You have to replace wrestling with wrestling. You have to replace science with the science. You have to replace faith with occult belief in esoteric religions. You have to replace logic with pyrology in the language of Lyotard. Reason has to become pretend reason. Faith has to become... Gnosis, which in reality becomes complete and absolute trust in the person that leads the cult. Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Hitler, maybe Klaus Schwab. The faith goes into the wizard, into his constructed hyper-reality and his spells, not into nature or nature's God or God. Reason and faith are undermined by Gnosis posing as more sophisticated and complicated versions of themselves through this negation of the real. And that's what I'm gonna talk about tomorrow in a talk that I title, The Gnostic Parasite. The thing you must realize is that we're dealing with secret religions that have operated since antiquity throughout the West. I mentioned Plato, kind of vanishes in the Middle Ages. There are lots of cults and things in the early first century, second century, kind of vanishes for a while in the Middle Ages. Comes back in with somebody named Ficino around the 15th century. Catches on fire throughout Europe. Hermeticism, the Corpus Hermeticum, gets translated into Latin from Greek, as it turns out. Spreads all over throughout Europe. The Germans got real into this. All the European nobility kind of got into this. Spreads all over. It has been the defining thing until then finally Hegel picks it up codifies it in an actionable way, as Marx said. Marx turns it into a political and economic project of destruction, and we've been on on a a 100 and, I guess, 60, 180-year path to doom so long as we failed to recognize that what we're dealing with are secret, esoteric religions hiding as economics and politics and science and your faith. That's why we have to understand it. That's why we have to resist it. That's why you have to be able to identify who's trafficking in it and identify if they're doing so willingly, as a demon, as we might say, or if they're doing so under the influence of demons and either bring them back or cast them out, as we all know we should, which we call taking responsibility. And they try to project onto us as what they do, cancel culture. Thank you.